Uh, over the last few weeks, we have been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, which is our, we're cutting in and out here, aren't we? All right, I'm just going to have to work with that. All right, uh, we are, it's arguably the greatest sermon ever preached. And Jesus, it's very important when we're understanding the Sermon on the Mount um, that we understand who Jesus is talking to and why he's giving the sermon and what's going on in their world uh, in order to properly understand and then apply what he talks about. Because it's easy with the Sermon on the Mount or anywhere in Scripture where it looks like sort of at times it's little proverbs, like little bite-sized pieces of information, and you can just kind of airlift that thing out of there, and people will airlift these verses out and make them mean whatever they want them to mean. But what we need to understand is what did Jesus mean? And if we understand what Jesus means, then we can understand what that means to us. So we have to do the work of contextualizing and studying and all of that in order to properly understand what's going on. And so that's what we're trying to do as we move through this series. Because the Sermon on the Mount, pieces of it could easily be misunderstood understood out of context. Um, and so we've been talking about Jesus, who has just started his ministry not too long before he gives this sermon. And he started talking about this thing called the kingdom of heaven which John had, his cousin John the Baptist had talked about before he came around, but he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he, the, the natural question, and Jesus is healing people and doing miracles, and so they're buying into what this guy is saying. And so the natural question that people are asking is, well, how does that work? You know, how does the kingdom work? How, how do you live in the kingdom? How are you a citizen of the kingdom? And so Jesus, in this message, talks about what kind of people are successful and rewarded citizens of the kingdom? Which is why he starts off the message with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are the kinds of people that are successful in the kingdom. These are the kinds of people that God is looking for. And then Jesus goes into explaining how to be that kind of person in the religious system that they're currently in. Because he is talking to Jews at the time who are still under the law. Okay, They're under the Old Testament law. And so they still have to follow the law until he gives his life on the cross and rises again. And then the law is, is uh, well, we talked about how to think about the law a couple weeks ago with a little drawing with the buckets. If you missed that, that was two weeks ago. And that was helpful um, from what I understand understand how we think about the law today. But we are not under the law today. But they were. And he's talking to people who were. And so they need to understand for them how to follow the law, but to follow it in the way that God intended for them to follow it, which was not just to keep a list of do's and don'ts, but was to be people of character, of godly character, who followed the law because the law was natural for them to follow given the character that they had. Okay, but the problem is that, that faith at the time had been diminished or relegated to, to just following a list of rules, religion. And that's what was demonstrated for them by the Pharisees. Hey, as long as you don't break the rule, you're fine. And that's the way that a lot of people look at religion as a whole. It's the way a lot of religions work. It's, a, it's the way that a lot of people think Christianity works too. Like as long as you just don't break the rule, you're good. As long as you do what God said to do or don't do what God didn't say to do or said not to do, then you're fine, <laughs> right? Does that make sense? right? It's just like, it's a checklist. That's the way people look at Christianity. That's not what it is. That's not what it is. In fact, for us today, because Jesus gave his life on the cross and rose again, if we put our faith in him, he pays for, he's paid for our sin and we are forgiven of our sin. We have eternal life. Jesus, as we mentioned in the music set, Jesus Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. 
all right? Then our salvation is not dictated by keeping a list of rules, right or wrong, whether we do this thing or don't do this thing. But we've, been, we've received the Spirit, and what God wants us to do in order to be faithful is to learn how to follow the Spirit and to look at His Word and to become the people He's creating us to be. It's a deeper, a bigger, a higher, and a broader thing that he's looking for. And so Jesus, as he goes into the Sermon on the Mount, he starts giving examples of what that looks like. So we talked last week about the issue. He said, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder. He said, but I tell you that if you even hate your brother and call him names or devalue him in your heart, you've already committed murder in your heart. Because people would say, well, as long, I can hate my brother, but as long as I don't murder him, I haven't broken the rule, so I'm fine, right? And Jesus is like, no, you're not fine. Because hate is the reason for the rule, right? Hate is the reason for the rule. And so you need to rise to the level of the reason, not just the rule. And then he said, adultery. He said, you've you know, heard it said, don't commit adultery. And so you think, well, I can look lustfully at a woman, but as long as I don't cross the line and actually do anything physically, then I'm fine, right? And Jesus says, no, no, you're not fine because God doesn't just want people who don't commit adultery. He wants people who are sexually pure in their life and in their heart. So there's something higher, bigger, broader. And the, the religious leaders of the day had missed, missed that. He, so today we're going to go into a couple more examples of that. See, the problem with legalism or law-based living is that it turns us, it turns us into lawyers, okay? <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with lawyers, if you happen to be one, as a whole. There are plenty of jokes about lawyers, all right? Because it turns us, we just try to become an expert in the law so we know what we can get away with and what we can't, right? We want to know where the line is so that we know if we can get away with something, what we can do and what we can't do. And it's the wrong way to think. I actually heard a story about a lawyer. A lawyer was uh, uh, diagnosed with a terminal illness, and they, they brought him into the hospital, and he was laying there in the hospital bed. And this guy had just been, he'd been a tough guy his entire life. He'd been the kind of lawyer, you know, when you get the job, want to get the job done, you call this guy in because he'll pull no punches, you know, that kind of guy. And so he goes to his, uh, he goes, he's laying in his deathbed, and his wife, is faithful believer, is sitting next to him. And she's always prayed for him and always hoped that one day that he would uh, receive Christ and that he would turn his life over to God. And, and um, so he's on the deathbed, and he looks at her, and he says, honey, would you go get me a Bible? And she was like, yes, absolutely, I'll go get you a Bible. So she finds a Bible, and she brings it to him, and he opens, and he just starts flipping through pages. I mean, furiously reading over the text and going through it, like, intently with a just a blank stare flipping through. And she, she said, honey, what are you doing? Are, are, are you looking for salvation? And he said, no, I'm looking for a loophole. <laughs> okay. See, legalistic thinking makes us look for the loopholes in the law. Like, how can we get out of this? How do we get around it? How do we live? How do I live just above that line so that I'm good? And it is the wrong way to think. And so as Jesus is giving us these examples, he's going to hit a couple today that are very personal for us. And we're going to talk through them, all right? We're in uh, verse 31, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew is in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. That's what we'll be covering over, I think we've got about 10 weeks, 10 or 11 weeks left in this series. All right, Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. I'm giving you a little time to get there. If you do, uh, if you have a device or an app where you look this up, I think it's good. Even though we do put it on the screen for you, it's good to just get used to it, get comfortable with having your Bible in front of you and looking around and reading. 
Um, and the other thing I think that is, is great is that when you have a Bible in front of you, even at church, uh, what we put on the screen is what we put on the screen. But when you have a Bible in front of you, whether that's print or whether that's, you know, on your device, you have the opportunity to read around what we're reading and to look at greater context if you want to do it and do your own research and your own checking as we go through this stuff, not just, you know, taking what we give to you. And uh, that's good. We need to become self-learners and self-feeders. So um, hopefully you've had time to get there by now. We're uh, Matthew chapter 5. Verse 31. And this is a series of statements here where Jesus starts off by saying, you have heard it said of old. And then he gives a teaching that they would have been taught. And then he says, but I say to you, and then he takes it to a deeper level. That's the format of what he's doing. All right, verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So, uh, he is saying that what you've heard is that if you want to divorce your spouse, all you have to do is make it legal. So if you make it legal, then you're good. That's what you're being taught. That's what you're being told. Now, this is a reference, a direct reference, uh, most likely to uh, uh, law that's given or rule that's given in Deuteronomy chapter 24, where this is said. And I think it's important for us to understand why it was said. The reason that this statement was made in Deuteronomy 24 is because apparently there were situations where men were divorcing their wives, but they were not making it legal. There was not a legal process for it. They weren't giving them a certificate of divorce. So technically, legally, societally, she was still attached to him. But he would divorce her, stop caring for her, stop providing for her, and then he would go off and, uh, and do what he was going to do, and she would be left without anything. Because in their culture, a woman had to have someone to provide for her because she could not provide for herself. And so she would go off and marry someone else. And when she went off and married someone else, and this, I know it's complicated, but these are the kind of situations they were, they were going through. She goes off and marries someone else, and that guy dies. Well, the ex was coming back, I guess, and saying, hey, she's still mine because I never divorced her. And so in Deuteronomy 24, that's the situation. And so they're saying, you need to give her a certificate of divorce to make it legal so that she can move on with her life. The, the, the other situations were um, a man would divorce his wife but not make it legal, and then she would need someone to provide for her, so she would go off and get remarried. And when she went and got remarried because she was technically still married to the first guy, then she would go off with the second guy and would be committing adultery and would be causing him to commit adultery. So the rule was put in place to, in that case to protect the rights of the women in the society, but was you need to make it legal. If you're going to stop caring for her, stop providing for her, then it needs to become a legal thing. All right. So that seems to be what Jesus is referencing. And in their culture, in their day, the issue of divorce was a hotly debated topic within the religious leaders. Okay? Within the Pharisees, those are religious leaders, there were two schools of thought. They followed particular rabbis. Okay? The first one was the school of Shammai. All right? He followed the, the teachings of the rabbi Shammai. There was another, it was called the, the school of Hillel. And they followed the teachings of the rabbi Hillel. And they had two very different opinions or stances on what constituted a legal reason for divorce. So on one side, you had the school of Shammai. And they were more conservative. They were more traditional. They held that there were only four legitimate reasons to get a divorce. And uh, the, the, actually, the the th there's one, and then the other three are kind of one. So it's like four, but it's kind of two. 
All right. So the first valid reason they said that there was for divorce was in the case of adultery. So when one spouse would have an affair outside of the relationship, that constituted legal grounds for divorce in their mind. And that was widely held and understood in, in their culture and society. In fact, it was almost expected. It was almost required that if your spouse had an affair, then you would get a divorce. It was expected. All right. So that was one. Um, the other three kind of all tied together. They all come from the same scripture in Exodus chapter 30. And that was if a spouse withheld from their spouse um, food, clothing, or affection. And that's physical affection. Okay. So those three I, I, would, I would categorize together as uh, abandoning your responsibility to your spouse. So if you stopped, if a husband stopped providing food, clothing, and affection for his wife, then that would be constitute grounds for divorce in an extreme enough case uh, under the school of Shammai. So that's what they said, and that was it. They would not grant a divorce to anyone outside of those four things. On the other side, you have the school of Hillel, though. And the school of Hillel had created something that they called an any-cause divorce which meant you could divorce your spouse for any cause, any reason you wanted to. In fact, there is actually a recorded case of them granting a divorce to a man because his wife burned her din his dinner, all right? Because she burned dinner, and he filed for divorce, and they granted it, all right? Now, listen, if, if cooking is a standard for divorce, Jess and I are going to be together forever, right? She is awesome, all right? She is an awesome cook and never burns anything. So that, we've got that going. And that's not like, by the way, that's not like, a, well, she's the, she's the wife, so she cooks kind of thing. Like, she loves cooking, all right? She, it's therapeutic for her to cook, and she loves to. And it's therapeutic for me to eat, and I love to. And so it works out for us, right? But that was, that was for them, in the school of Hillel, that was a legitimate reason to get divorced. Any cause, this was a hotly debated question. Which is it? In fact, there's a, there's a parallel passage in some ways to this, to Matthew 5, what Jesus says right here, found in Matthew 19. And we'll read, we'll talk a little bit more about exactly what happens there in a minute. But it starts with somebody coming to Jesus and saying, teacher, is it valid for someone, is it lawful for someone to divorce their wife for any cause? They use the term that the Pharisees were using, the school of Hillel was using. And so that's what they wanted to know. Can you just divorce your spouse for any old reason? Is that valid? What does God think about that? And then he answers, and part of his answer, like I said, we'll talk more in detail about it, but part of his answer is identical to what he says here in Matthew chapter 5. He repeats himself. Exactly. All right? And so the, that's the question that they're asking. As long as, and this is the problem that Jesus is addressing, as long as you go and make it legal, is any divorce okay? And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. All right. He says, this is what you've heard. As long as you give him a certificate of divorce, as long as you give her a certificate of divorce, then you're fine. Well, what does he have to say about that? All right, Matthew chapter 5 now. Next verse. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Okay, so we're going to have to talk about this a little bit in order to understand what Jesus is saying and how they would have understood it and heard it. 
But, but before we get into that, I, I, I need to take just a minute, if we can just kind of step outside of this for a moment. And I just, I want to confess to you, or not confess, that he thinks something bad's coming. Uh, I want to just want to say to you, <laughs> say it out loud, I hate talking about this kind of stuff. The reason I hate talking about it is because it is, or not that I hate talking about it, but I don't look forward to talking about it, is because it is so deeply personal for so many of you. Because of the experiences that you've had in your life with marriage, with divorce, with remarriage. In so many different scenarios, and every single one is different. And we have very close friends of ours who are, have been divorced and have been remarried. And it, it is only natural when we talk about something like this to look back to your past, what you've been through, whether it was you or someone very close to you, and start running your life and your decisions through the filters of what we talk about. And that can be a very painful thing to do. And what we're going to talk about today, I can't get into all the situations of everybody's relationship in our conversation today. There's just no way to do that. Uh, so I'm going to keep things fairly broad as we go through. And you're going to take that, I'm sure, and you're going to then apply it to your past and your history. And maybe you're looking back at a divorce that you went through or a decision that you made, and you're going to be asking the question, well, how should I think about that? How should I think about it? Was God honored by that? Was he not? Was it sinful? Was it not? What are the results of that afterward? And so if you're looking back to the past, this is, this is I guess, what I want to say. First of all, you can't undo it. Okay, you can't undo it. And even if you look back at what you've done and you realize that maybe it wasn't something that was faithful, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was a sinful decision, maybe it wasn't the right course you should have taken. You need to understand that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you stand in grace. And there is nothing that is unforgivable and there is nothing that is unredeemable. And so even if you look back, you don't need to carry with yourself guilt or shame because of that today. We do need to learn from what we've done in the past. But you don't need to carry guilt or shame. You are forgiven of it, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you don't have to live in that. And there is no state of perpetual, unchangeable sin. All right? And so I just want you to carry that with you today as we talk and um, I've, I've done a lot of study on this personally, a ton that we're not going to talk about today. Um, I spent quite a bit of time this weekend on the phone with my father, who's been dealing with this for years and years and years, and is an, uh, by far more of an expert in Scripture than I am. And uh, we were talking all through it and getting into the details and into the weeds of stuff. And he's like, well, you're not going to talk about all that in the message, right? <laughs> like, that's way too deep down into, you know, stuff that wouldn't apply to 99% of the people in the room. And I said, no, I'm not preparing for the message. I'm preparing for the conversations after the message. <laughs> when people email me or call me or text me or come up to me afterwards, and they're like, well, here's my situation. What do you think about it? And... Um, First of all, I would tell you, I, you know, I would love to help give perspective and uh, scripture that would apply and all of that, but it's also not my place to judge you. And so, um, and so uh, whatever situation you may have gone through, I just want you to remember that you are under grace today as you go through that so that this doesn't place a weight of shame or guilt on your shoulders because I don't think that it should. All right. Uh, if you confess, and even if you listen, if you... Um, because you're thinking through it, you, 
become convinced, yeah, you know what, I don't think I did that the right way. I think that, I don't think God was honored by the way that I handled that relationship or the whatever it was. Um, you need to know that if you confess that sin to God, it may be, it will not affect your eternal destiny, but it will affect your relationship with him. Uh, but scripture says that if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you can trust in that 100%, okay? Uh, uh, divorce is incredibly painful, okay? It's incredibly painful. It's incredibly difficult. And um, God, just so you I just need to say it because scripture says it, God hates it. He does. He hates it. It's not that there aren't cases where divorce is necessary or accepted or whatever. It's that we need to know that God always hates divorce. And uh, there's a scripture where God says this to the prophet Malachi, but it gives a reason. It gives a reason. It's not just that God hates it. And it's cl- you need to be clear what you, what you need to hear clearly here is God does not hate divorced people. Okay? He does not hate divorced people. He hates divorce. He hates what it is and where it comes from. And he says in, um, uh, through the prophet Malachi in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 16, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Why does God hate divorce? Well, first, he hates divorce because it's always the result of sin. Always. On the part of one spouse or both, but it is always a result of sin. It's the result of someone dealing treacherously, and that pains God. He hates divorce because it flows out of sin. And he hates divorce because it's violent. You see, when you, when you get married, when you stand before God Almighty and in a true spirit make a commitment between you and another person to love and to cherish in sickness and in health till death do us part, and you make that commitment before God, there are two things that happen. First of all, in our society, there's a civil union that happens, a legal connection that happens. That's the getting of the marriage license, the signing of the marriage license. The only thing you have to say in order for that to be legal uh, is your I do's. <laughs> that's it. You don't have to say the vows or anything like that. All you have to do basically in a wedding, I tell this to everybody who, who, who uh, I do a wedding for, you know, put whatever you want in the wedding. The only thing required by law is that you say I do. I just want to make sure you're not there by force, okay, (laughs) that you are willingly getting married to this person, all right? When that happens, and almost every culture in the world and through history has had some form of civil union, whether that's official, legal, or unofficial, uh, there's some sort of legal thing that happens. There's a civil union that happens when you get married. That's the first thing that happens, or one thing that happens. But the other thing that happens when you make your vows before God, till death do we part, is that there is a spiritual union that's connected that's created. It's put in scripture as the two becoming one. You are spiritually united and fused to one another. So the first, the civil union is being married under the state's authority. But the second, the spiritual union is being married under God's authority. And um, that's why at the end of a wedding, I always say, by the authority of God and the laws of the state. Those are the two things I pronounce you man and wife. That's the two things that happen. Divorce is violent because divorce takes what God has joined together and rips it apart. 
And God has given us in our marriage relationships the symbol of sexual connection with each other as a symbol of that spiritual connection that has happened between us. That's why sex is not just a physical thing. It is a spiritual thing. It is a representation of the spiritual union that we have, which is why when one partner commits adultery and unites themselves with someone outside of the relationship, that that spiritual union between you and your spouse is ripped apart. All right? That's, so scripture says, uh, man, uh, what God has joined together, let not man separate that that spiritual union must be kept holy, must be protected. God hates divorce because sin is the cause and the result is a tearing apart of what he joined together. It's violent. And so it is important for us to know that God's desire in our marriages is never divorce. That is never his desire. It is never his desire. His desire is that we would keep our covenant with each other. Now, when we look at what Jesus is talking about here, Jesus says, uh, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, let me get it exactly right. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But you can just go, you can go get the legal document and then you're good to go. All right, the problem is that addresses one part of what happens at a wedding, but it does not address the second part of what happens at a wedding, right? It is a legal divorce, but what about the spiritual union that's happened in the relationship? Jesus says, any divorce, not because of sexual immorality. So he takes a divorce that's happened because of sexual immorality and he sets it aside. Now, this is interesting And it's important for us to talk about this before we get to the situation he is talking about. Let's talk about the situation he isn't talking about. He's saying a divorce, this doesn't qualify, this doesn't apply to a a divorce that's happened because of sexual immorality. Now, he chooses his words really carefully, okay, really carefully. He says, and we're going to go to the, the, the Greek words here, but he says, any divorce that happens in the exception or not because of sexual immorality, He says sexual immorality. He uses the word porneia, not the word that he uses all around it for adultery, which is machio. So Jesus doesn't say any divorce that happens except in the case of adultery. He says, except in the case of sexual immorality. It's a bigger or broader word. And that leaves you going like, whoa, it would be clear to us. Well, yeah, if one spouse cheats on the other one, well, they would have all at that time, they would all have accepted that as a reasonable reason for getting divorced, or acceptable reason. But he's, he's drawing this out bigger than just an affair? What does that mean? What's he getting at? Well, he doesn't specifically define what he means there, so there's room for interpretation, I believe. But understanding this culturally, in their society, a man would have been considered to have committed adultery if he went and had a physical affair with a woman who was married. But if he were to go and have a physical relationship or a physical affair with someone, a woman who was not married, a servant, uh, a prostitute, uh, whatever, that was not considered adultery. That was not breaking the marriage covenant and was not grounds for divorce. 
under the school of Shammai. So I think what Jesus is doing here is since he's just talked about adultery and that you've committed it in your heart, if you even think lustfully about another woman, I think what he's doing is he's making sure to draw this out for them so they know I'm not just talking about when the husband has an affair with a married woman. It's when the husband has an affair with any woman. All right, you, it, it is no different. It is ripping apart and it is, ripping, it is breaking the spiritual union that exists within the marriage. So I think he's drawing it out. Now, how far you go with that, I, I think there's room for interpretation because he isn't clear. But he is very intentionally making it broader than just their definition of adultery. Okay, so he's taking that example and he's setting it aside. All right, now let's look at what he's actually saying. (laughs) He's saying any divorce, not because of sexual immorality. If the woman goes off and gets, goes off and gets married, the husband causes her to commit adultery. And if a man marries that woman, And I think that's what he's saying when he says any man that marries a divorced woman. I don't think it's any divorced woman. I think he's talking about a woman out of the situation he's just talked about. So if a man comes and marries that woman, then he also commits adultery. Why would that be? Why would Jesus say that? Because just because they went and got a legal document for whatever reason they were able to get one that said they were divorced, does not mean that God is obligated to follow that legal document. Just because they divorced the the civil union does not mean they have divorced the spiritual union. God is not, he's not the clerk of court. He, He is not obligated to follow and respect and agree with a decision that we made just because we went and got a paper signed. So what Jesus is saying is, yes, you might have gone and got a divorce and you were divorced in society's eyes, but you were not divorced in God's eyes because you did not get divorced for a reason that he saw acceptable or whatever. You know, I hate to say acceptable because it sounds like God welcomes it, but he approves. Or again, that sounds positive too. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? That God accepts. This... Jesus says specifically, and he says this in in Matthew chapter 19, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That includes a civil court. So just because there's a paper in place does not mean God sees it the same way. That's why he says, if a man divorces his wife for just any reason, and she goes off and she gets remarried, she's committing adultery. Because in God's eyes, she's still married to the first guy. And that's why the guy who marries that divorced woman is also committing adultery is because she's still married to the first guy. Because she went off and got a divorce because he burned dinner, because she burned dinner. You know? That we need, we need to learn to look at our relationships and all of our life through God's lens, not just a legal one. We need to look at life in a spiritual way, not just a physical, tangible way. Now, if we aren't careful, here's what we'll do with this scripture. And this is why I'm not going to get into the weeds of, you know, what divorce God says is okay or whatever, you know. Because if we're not careful, we'll read the scripture and we'll do exactly what Jesus is trying to teach against. 
And that's that we will turn Jesus' statement here into a new law. And we'll use this verse to try and say, this is not what Jesus is doing, to say, okay, so the, the, the teachers of the law say that the, the bar is here. Jesus, where do you say the bar is? Oh, Jesus, you say the bar is here. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, stop worrying about where the bar is and start looking beyond it. Learning to live in a righteous way, in a holy way. So stop trying to look for what you can get out of. And if, and if you're not careful, you'll look at the scripture and you'll just start looking for ways to get out of your marriage based on what it says. And that's not what Jesus is doing. Stop looking for loopholes. Stop looking for a way to get out. And figure out a way in the spirit to stay in and to keep the commitment and the covenant that you have made before him at all costs. I'm not saying there's nothing we can learn here for that in a specific situation, but I'm saying on the whole, on the, God hates divorce, and he wants us to stay together and keep the covenant that we made. And only in the most extreme circumstances should we talk about when that might not be the case. But what we should be doing in the Sermon on the Mount as we're looking at this is to look and understand what Jesus is saying. The big picture, that our commitments matter to God and we should stop looking for ways to get out of them. That we should be committed and follow through. Children of the kingdom don't look for a way out of what they've said they're going to do. It's not unreasonable for God to hold me to what I told him I would do. When I stood on the altar and I said, until death do us part, it's not unreasonable for him to hold me to that. And so I made the commitment. I made the commitment. And so to try to find a way out, which show that we don't take as seriously that commitment that we made, particularly in a, what might be even a silly situation. So I told you we were going to talk about Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Somebody comes to Jesus and they say, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? What do you think about this any cause divorce thing that's going around? And Jesus' response is, don't you know that the scripture says that a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And then somebody comes to him and he says, wait a minute, Jesus, then why did Moses allow for us to get a certificate of divorce? If God wants us to stay together, he doesn't want us to get divorced. Why did Moses create the system for us to get divorced from each other? That was a reasonable question. And Jesus said, it's because of the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. Yes, the reality of our life is that people were in these situations, and so Moses created a way for people to escape that, that situation, but that is not God's intent for you. That's not what he wants for you or for your life. And then Jesus repeats what he said in Matthew chapter 5. All right, he says, he says the exact same thing that he says before, almost word for word, all right? If a uh, man and woman if a get, get divorced and the woman remarries, she uh, commits adultery. And if somebody marries that woman, then she commits adultery. And he's, trying, he's reinforcing this idea again. And then one of his disciples says to him, well, Jesus, if that's the case, like if, if marriage is that serious, well, then maybe we shouldn't get married at all. And Jesus' answer is basically, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. He said, now this gift isn't given to everyone, meaning not everyone has the ability to control their sexual urges, and therefore, you know, marriage is the environment in which that is acceptable. And so, but he says, yeah, if you can do that, that's better. Paul says the same thing. He dedicates an entire, what we know as an entire chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, to explaining how that works and how incredible it is. And so that might be a decision for a lot of people, you know, that, that hey, I'm going to stay single, but I also am going to stay sexually pure as I am single, you know? So that's, he's like, yeah, because marriage is such a big deal. The commitment that you make is such a big deal. And you have to follow through on it, which I think makes, either, either, either keep your word or don't give it. Either keep your word or don't give it. And I honestly think that there are a lot of people who enter into marriage way too flippantly. They enter into marriage because they feel pressure to do it or because society says that you're supposed to do it or they just think it's what's next and they meet somebody and they don't really know them and they don't really know them that well, but they're attracted to them and they like hanging out with them and they don't, they haven't connected on a soul level or understood each other's priorities or goals or whatever else. And so they end up getting married and they stand in front of God, in front of witnesses and, and pledge to be with someone their entire life and they don't really know what they're getting into. And that's one of the reasons I think that premarital counseling is so important for a couple, to sit down with a counselor, to sit down with a pastor, and to talk about what marriage actually is and make sure you're really prepared to get up there and to make the commitment that you're about to make. I've actually, I've had one couple, I've had one couple in the history of doing weddings, and I haven't done a ton, but I've done, I've been, I don't know, maybe 25 or something like that. But I had one couple in premarital counseling, we got to the end, and we went through everything, and they said, do you think we should get married? And I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, I was surprised they needed to ask after what we had gone through in that, in that premarital counseling session. I said, no. And they were like, well, will you do the ceremony for us? I was like, no, I will not. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a train wreck. And, but anyway, yeah. Golly, they went down to the justice of peace. It didn't last long, okay? So I called that. But I just think that people enter into marriage way too flippantly, way too easily, and they don't take that commitment as seriously as they should. And then within marriage, even in our culture, people have made that commitment before God, regardless of how or why or when they made it, they made that commitment before God, and then they don't take it seriously in their relationship with their spouse. If you are married, you are spiritually united with your spouse, not just legally. So live and act like it. You are one. So behave that way, think that way, and feel that way. And a lot of things will go better in your relationship, by the way, if you see things like that. And I think it is so natural then that Jesus goes into the next section that he talks about, and he talks about keeping your word. Because this is the bigger picture. Marriage is an example of it, but this is the bigger issue at hand. In verse 33, he says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Now, this is not a direct quote to one scripture in particular, but there are several Old Testament passages that all would be, he's summarizing them together. So Leviticus 19, Numbers chapter 30, Deuteronomy chapter 23, several places where this idea is presented. Uh, for them, oaths, 
were a big deal. In fact, there was an entire section of the mission dedicated just to oaths, what kinds there were, they were categorized, and what was legally binding, what was not, how you got, how you could, basically where the loopholes were, what you had to keep and what you didn't. But for them, if they made an oath or a promise in the name of the Lord, that was the ultimate. That was the biggest one that was legally binding. They had to do that thing. That was, but they were trying to find loopholes and get around it. So they were doing things like swearing on the temple. And then later they would be like, well, the temple's not really God. I know it's his house, but, and they would try to get out of things. So they would swear on the temple or they would swear on the earth because God created it. Or they would swear on um, Jerusalem because it was the holy city. Or they would swear on their own head because God had created them. But they were trying to get out of their O's. It's the same problem he's been dealing with throughout this sermon. All right. And they weren't taking their oaths seriously. Now, we do the same thing, by the way. I know we probably think, well, we don't take a lot of oaths. That seems like a weird thing. But we do swear and we do, and I don't mean like language, but we do swear and we do take oaths. And we say this kind of stuff all the time. And first, and let me just a little side note, stop saying things like this. Okay, <laughs> When people say things like, I swear to God. Don't do that. Okay? Just don't say it. Because it's most likely taking the Lord's name in vain because you don't really mean it when you say it. Okay? But we say things like, and, and if I, side note for a second. I'm sorry about this. Just is looking at me like, where are you going? Where are you going? All right? Let me, let, me, let me say this. We have a bad habit as Christians of taking the Lord's name in vain and acting like it's not a big deal. And it is. It is. It's a bigger deal than saying the F word. Okay, Christians will get all up in a tizzy because someone uses coarse language or whatever, or those what we call swear words, but then they hit their hand with a hammer and they'll go, forgive me for this, they'll go, Jesus Christ, or Jesus. Stop doing it, dude, we just gotta stop doing it. It's not right, okay? So we need, to, we need to take what we say about God and what we say to God very, very seriously. It matters. We'll say things like, we'll say things like, I swear to God, or we'll, we'll do it there, I swear on my father's grave. You know, I swear on my life, right? We, we actually make oaths like that. And then those are flippant ones, right? To try and get someone to take us seriously. Or we, we still take oaths if you go and testify at court. You, you go into a courtroom and you put your hand on your Bible, a Bible and you say, I swear to tell the, whole, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And then people get on the stand and they lie through their teeth constantly, right? It means nothing. It means nothing to make those kinds of oaths in our society. So I think we should take that a lot more seriously. But Jesus says this. He said, you, you've heard it said, you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. What he's getting at is the idea that the only oath that is binding, the only one that's legal, the only one I can't get out of is the one where I say in God's name. And he says, uh, verse 34, but I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black. So you, know, you got no business swearing on these things. They're not yours to swear on. You don't own them and you don't have any control over them. And Jesus says in verse 37, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now, is Jesus saying not to take oaths? No, I don't, I don't think he's saying that. He just talked, he just reinforced marriage, which is an oath. <laughs> and uh, later in, um, 
in when he's on trial, the high priest says to him, Jesus, I put you under oath. Tell me the truth. Ask him a question. And Jesus doesn't push back on that. He just tells him the truth. And then Paul also talks about taking oaths in, um, in his epistles. So he's not saying don't make promises, don't take oaths, don't do that kind of thing. The point that he's trying to make is that Christian integrity should make oaths unnecessary. That we should have such integrity that when we say yes, it's yes, and we don't have to swear on God or swear on Jerusalem or swear on our father's grave or swear on our own life, that when we say something, it is true. When we say yes, it's yes. When we say no, it's no. Because all of life is spiritual, and therefore every commitment I make is made before God. And so I should take every commitment I make that seriously. And of course, that includes marriage, which he just gave the example of. Our marital union is spiritual more than it's legal. And our commitments are made before God more than they're made before men. And so if we want to be people who are walking in the character of Christ, who are becoming the people he's created us to be, who want to be great representatives of Christ to our community, who want to honor God and see reward in the kingdom, then we need to be people of deep and intense, unshakable character. And Jesus is teaching them this for the reason he talks about it at the end of the message. He said, if you build your life on these teachings, then when the wind and the rain and the storms come, your house will stand if you build on my foundation. But if you build your house on a foundation of sand, then when the wind and the rain and the storms come, that house will crash. And so if you want your life to be built on the solid, firm foundation of Jesus, then your yes should be yes and your no should be no. And if you have stood before the Lord and made a commitment to him, then you should carry it through. This is what Jesus wants to see in our life. A solid foundation built on him. All right, let's go to him and pray. I know we have a lot of things to think about and to process as we look at our own lives. And so let's go to him in prayer and ask him to continue leading us. Father, we come to you and recognize uh, your goodness. We recognize your love. That even though we have sinned and even though we have failed you and fallen short of your standard of righteousness, that you love us anyway. And that in your mercy, you sent your son, Jesus. Jesus gave his life on the cross, paying for our sin, and he rose again on the third day. And we put our faith in him for salvation. Maybe there's someone with us today who hasn't put their faith in Christ yet, and I'm going to do that right now. God, draw them to yourself, that they would accept you, believe in Jesus for salvation, And as you're in the process with all of us who have made that choice, God, you're in the process of taking all of us and conforming us into your image. That's a process and it's hard because we are still sinful and we are still distracted and we have people around us that are counseling us and coaching us and leading us in all different kinds of directions. And so at times it can be hard to see the truth and know what we're supposed to do through all the noise. And even today, as we hear from your word and we hear what you have to say about marriage in particular, Jesus, and how important and holy it is, 
that, that we as people should be people of our word, not having to swear on this or that or trying to get out of things or finding a loophole, but that we should be people of character and integrity and consistency and dependability. That our yes is yes and no is no. God, right now we're all looking at our own life and we're analyzing. We're analyzing if we're married. We're analyzing our marriage relationship. If we're, if we're, if, if there's some who aren't married, and they're thinking about it, or they're dating, or they're engaged, or they, they're, you know, divorced, or they're doing whatever, and they're trying to figure out what does this mean for me, and, and what am I supposed to be doing, and how am I supposed to be thinking about things through the power and leadership and wisdom and knowledge of the Spirit right now. Speak to us and show us. How do we take this truth that we've just seen and learned that's put right in front of our face to understand it clearly? And how do we apply that? What does it mean for us? Is there something that we need to repent of? Something that we need to ask forgiveness for, to change? Is there something that we need to release and realize that we are forgiven? Is there something that we need to come to confidence in to know that we were faithful to you even though we've questioned it? There may be a decision right now we have to make where we look at our life and we say, I made a commitment and I haven't intended on keeping it or I haven't been keeping it. Reinforce that in our heart, in our life. Help us to evaluate our commitments right now. And what you need us to do, what you want us to do in order to be people who represent you well, to to become the people that you created us to be. Maybe someone here who's looking at a potential commitment in front of them. They need you to help them decide whether they can say yes or whether they should say no. So that they can faithfully keep that. God, as we walk through our life, we want to build our life on the solid foundation of Jesus and his teaching. That it's more than legalism. It's more than than a a line in the sand or a, a rung on a ladder or just trying to stay above a minimum standard. That what you're looking for from us is to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness in all things. And not to live to some minimum standard, but to aspire to yours. Knowing that as we walk and as we succeed and as we fail, that we walk in grace. And so right now, God, we thank you for that. And we want to offer our lives to you as a sacrifice, as worship. I want you to see the attitude of our heart, the decisions that we make, the steps that are in front of us. And we want you to know that we're doing that because we love you. We're making these decisions because we love you. We're changing our lives because we love you. And in all of that, we know that you love us. And so we offer all of this to you. In your son's precious name. Amen.